Hey there, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast that slow walks passage by passage, unbelievably through Dante's masterwork comedy, unbelievably because we are the 201st episode of this podcast. We have been walking slowly for over two years now. If you are just finding this episode... <laughs> Good grief. I think you should go back to the beginning of the podcast, episode one, and catch up because it's hard to figure out where we are. But we are in the ninth circle of hell, the very bottom last circle. We're at Canto 32 of Inferno. We're at lines 70 through 102. That's the passage we're going to undertake. It is on my website, markscarborough.com or walkingwithdante.com. You can find it in both places. It goes to the same place. You can read along there. You can print it off. You can make notes. You can even drop comments. That would be spectacular. So let me just set the scene again. Ninth circle of hell, ice sheet, cockatus, the final revelation of hell itself toward the very bottom. We have crossed through one of its sub rings, Kaina, for those who have been traitorous or treacherous toward family members. And now we're passing on to a second of the sub-rings of the Ninth Circle, slipping along the ice sheet with Dante the Pilgrim and his guide, Virgil. Canto 32 of Inferno, lines 70 through 102. After that, I saw a thousand faces turned purple by the cold. Thus I still shiver at frozen fords. And I always will. As we walked on toward the center where all the weight bears in, and I was quaking with the eternal cold, whether what happened was willed or fated or destined, I don't know. In any event, passing on among the heads, I happened to kick one of them hard right in the face. Wailing, he called out to me, Why do you stomp on me unless you came down here to execute some vendetta about Monteperti? Why even fool with me? And I, my master, please wait a bit for now because I want to clear up a doubt about this guy. Then we can hurry along as much as you want. My guide stopped and I said to the guy who still cursed at me like an animal, Who are you to be calling out others like this? Well, who are you to be going through Antinora? He replied, bashing others in the cheeks. If I were alive, this would be too much to bear. Well, I am indeed alive, and if you give a hoot about fame, I replied, I can put your name in my notes. And he to me, I'm greedy for just the opposite. Get out of here and quit bugging me. You have no clue how to flatter someone down in this swamp. I grabbed him by the hair at the nape of his neck and said, Either you tell me your name or you're not going to have a hair left on your head. At which he to me, You can scalp me and I still won't tell you who I am, nor raise my head up to let you see me, even if you jump on my head a thousand times. 
a violent episode here down toward the bottom of hell, full of all kinds of political resonances. We want to talk about that. We want to talk about some translation problems in this passage. We never talk about translation problems, but this passage calls out a couple instances, and it's interesting to just note the problems in the medieval Florentine. And then we want to talk about the larger question of Antenora and where we are in the second sub-ring of the ninth circle of hell. As I said, we have passed through the first sub-ring, those who have been treacherous or traitors to their own families. We had speakers there. We had a passel of the damned pointed out to us. And now we have somehow slipped, slid on the ice. We have moved down to the second sub-ring. We should note that the faces here appear to be turned up. Remember in Caina, the first subring, the faces were turned down. These appear to be turned up because the pilgrim can note the color of the faces. If the faces turn down toward the ice, then he couldn't really notice the color. So it appears we infer that the faces here are more turned up. It's not clear, and I do think that that's intentional. I think the lack of clarity and the amount of inference we have to give this passage is completely intentional by Dante the poet. We should also note, and this seems important to say, that I have actually unnaturally cut this passage in half. This passage should go on. You can figure there's more. I mean, Dante's got this damned soul by the small hairs at the back of the neck. Dante the pilgrim is threatening to rip all his hair out. The guy doesn't seem to care. You can figure that there's more to this than just what's in this passage. I have unnaturally divided it because there is just so much to say. So, sorry. There's a little plot that's missing here. It'll come up in the next episode of this podcast, and that little bit of plot will help us unpack more of this scene. So, we're going to come back to this scene in the next episode of the podcast, and at the end of the next episode, I'll read the whole Antonora section, or that is the whole section of the second subring of the night circle. Let's get to some of the translation problems. There are three distinct problems, and I just want to point them out to you. It begins after that, after having dealt with the past speaker and those treacherous toward their families, I saw a thousand faces turned purple by the cold. It's that word purple that is the pr- translation problem in the medieval Florentine. It's cagnazzi. And uh, the line is video mille visi cagnazzi fatti per freddo. I saw a thousand faces and then this word cagnazzi fatti per freddo made dog-like by the cold. You can hear the word for dog if you know much about Romance languages in that word cagnazzi. And you'll notice that I translated it purple. This is a translation problem that has been brought up repeatedly by translators. It was first pointed out by F. Magini, a dentista in the early part of the 20th century, in an article he wrote in 1920 on Dante's studies. And he claimed that cagnazzi, this adjective that is used to describe their faces, is actually a slang word for purple or violet 
or deep red. He cites examples of this as a slang term. Later scholars have found more examples in medieval Italian of this word as a slang word, dog-like, to mean purple, probably from the interior of dogs' mouths, that deep red color of their gums. I have left it as a slang term, purple. But you should know that there are plenty of translators who would translate this line. After that, I saw a thousand faces turned dog-like by the cold. They would be then not relying on this as a slang term, but as really just a dog reference. I have followed Magini in his translation, and I think that his scholarship far outweighs mine. So I'm just going to sit there (laughs) with him and let it be purple. The second translation problem occurs just after it. So everybody's purple. The pilgrim shivers. The poet shivers. We're going to come back to that. And then we get the next three lines. As we walked on toward the center where all the weight bears in. It's right there. Al quale ogni gravezza si rauna. Where all the... And then so many translators want this to be gravity, where all the gravity bears in or bears down or pushes down so hard. It's really not gravity. Dante does not know about gravity. Instead, Dante most likely follows the medieval theory, as I've explained to you before, that like attracts like. So why does water flow downhill? Because it's seeking a larger body of water. Bigger things made out of the same thing attract smaller things. Why do flames go up from a fire? Because the earth, and in fact the whole universe, is ringed by fire. And so my little campfire is moving up toward the big ring of fire that goes around the universe. Why do I stand on a globe? And Dante does think Earth is a sphere. We'll be on that much more in episodes ahead. Why do I then stick to this sphere? Because according to Genesis, I am made out of the dust of the ground. The Earth is clearly a big ball. (laughs) of dust. And so I stick to it because bigger like attracts smaller like. So this is not gravity. Instead, there's this way in which all the weight is bearing in. And I think we should just stop and think about that for a second, because we were approaching the center of everything, right? He says, as we walked on toward the center, especially if the earth is a sphere and the earth is the center of the universe, then we are approaching the very center of the universe itself in a Ptolemaic system. And that means All the weight of the universe is bearing in on this point we're coming to at the center of the earth. And I think that Dante's poetics match this problem because Canto 32 and Canto 33 here where we are become increasingly airless. We get 
lists of sinners. We get, as here, a fight that's not fully explained. There seems to be a great deal of violence in the passage. We have to kind of look historically outside the passage to figure out why there's so much violence in the passage. And the whole scenes themselves get tighter and tighter and tighter, and also more and more dependent on interpretation. I'm setting you up for what's right ahead of us, which is the last great sinner of hell. And it just strikes me that when we get down here in the ninth circle, the weight is so heavy that interpretation itself becomes difficult. Where do you cross the boundaries between Caina and Antonora? Why is Virgil so silent? Why does the pilgrim get so angry at this damned soul stuck in the eyes? Why won't this damned soul look up? So much has to be interpreted inferred from history, from Virgilian passages, from biblical passages, from Ptolemaic universal concepts. So much has to be inferred into the text to make it make sense that it gives it an airless-like quality, indeed, where the weight bears in. And finally, the last translation problem in the passage. It's when this damned soul speaks, and he says, after Dante the Pilgrim kicks him hard in the face, who are you to be going through Antonora bashing others in the cheek? And then this phrase, if I were alive, this would be too much to bear. The phrase there in the medieval Florentine is sefasi vivo. And I should just stop and say, as a side point, Canto 32 plays so much with vivo and vido and visi, these words for see and living or alive and faces. There is so much playing with these words that are very close to each other, which again leads us to kind of an airless space where one single consonant or one vowel makes a difference in the meaning of the word, thereby feeling like we're close closing in tight. Se fossi vivo can mean if you were alive or if I were alive. The subject is dropped and it's impossible from the verb form to determine the exact subject. You'll notice that I translated it as if I were alive. Many, indeed, I might even say most commentators translate it as if you were alive, this would be too much to bear, which means that this sinner doubts that the pilgrim is alive and says, you know, God, if you were alive, it's it's a little bit much to go around kicking the dam. But I mean, come on, you're, you're clearly damned and on your way farther down in the pit. What are you doing messing with us? Why, why are you kicking us? I think the next line, the line that Pilgrim gives where he says, I am alive. And if you give a hoot about fame, I can put your name in my notes. I think that helps me translate the previous line as if I were alive, because the sinner says, look, if I were alive, some guy kicking me in the face would be too much for me to handle. And then the pilgrim comes back with, well, 
guess what? I am in live, you know, so uh, you may not be, but I am. And in fact, I can do something for you. I can put your name in my notes and I can continue your fame up on earth. We'll talk about that in a minute. I think that the response from the pilgrim helps me translate that line, that so false vivo. But you should just know it's highly controversial. And as many Dantistas, maybe more, would translate it if you were alive. So three translation problems inside this passage as we approach the bottom of the universe. Let's go back up to those opening bits and look at the eruption of the poet inside this passage. It starts out, after that, after the souls in Kaina, I saw a thousand faces turned purple by the cold. And this is where we kind of have to infer that maybe the faces are turned up and upright and looking out. Thus, I still shiver at frozen fords, you know, where you can ford a river. I still shiver at frozen fords. And then this curious line, and I always will. The eruption of the poet is very curious because we have had the poet elsewhere inside the poem. Obviously, I've pointed it out to you dozens of times, even back in the first canto, in the dark wood, that the poet erupts within the first few lines of the poem itself, saying, oh my gosh, even the memory of this makes me quake now sitting here at my desk writing this poem. But I don't think we've ever had a moment in which the poet predicts his future life. I just find that so curious here, that, and I always will. That's not just the poet saying, hey, I'm back here writing, and oh, by the way, this place is so frigid cold that it makes me cold to think about it. In fact, I think about this place every time I cross a frozen ford at a river, and I always will. There is a way in which we are being told that the effects of this journey will go on in the poet's life into the future, which then further buttresses the claim that the pilgrim who became the poet really did make this journey. And not only that, this journey was so significant across the known universe that when I come to common sites, a fording spot in a river that's frozen in the winter, I shiver and think of this moment. And furthermore, it's going to stick with me for the rest of my life. The reality claims for the journey are becoming louder and louder. It's not that Dante is writing about a pilgrim who went on a journey. It's that Dante went on this journey and became the poet who could write about it. You might want to think about that for a good long time, but we're pressing on. To the question of violence in the passage, Dante walks along and gives this strange line, whether what happened was willed or fated or destined, I don't know. That also adds to the verisimilitude of the journey, the reality claim of the journey itself. Because, listen, if anybody knows, you know you're the poet, you're making it up. But if you're not making it up, if you're recording the events as they actually happen, then maybe you don't know 
why what happened next happened. And so the pilgrim then kicks somebody right in the head, frozen up to their necks and his eyes. He kicks one right in the head. There is a long critical debate about whether this is intentional or fated (laughs) or whether it's just an accident. But Dante the poet feeds us that. Whether what happened was willed or fated or destined, I don't know. I, I I don't know. Did it just happen? Is it something that happened because God willed me to kick this person? Was it part of my fate to kick this person? Part of the threads of my very existence? I don't know, but he does. He kicks them. The guy wails out. And then, of course, we get the sequence of pulling the guy's hair and threatening to pull all his hair out to scalp him. Why is this passage become so violent? Well, let me give you, of course, several answers. And let me give you the most common answer first. The most common answer is that Dante the Pilgrim is learning, how do I put this bluntly, learning how to show contempt for the damned. Early on, let's say with Francesca, he is, what, just overwhelmed by Francesca's damned state. But as we reach the bottom, Dante learns that the damned don't deserve any sympathy. And so here he is, kicking one, pulling his hair out. This is the traditional answer given, and I have to tell you, I have many problems with it. First of all, I don't understand the linear development from someone who cares about the damned to someone who doesn't care about the damned, when in fact there are instances in which Dante doesn't care about the damned inside that linear development. Go back to Filippo Argenti in The River Styx, and Dante the Pilgrim wishes to see him torn limb from limb, and then Virgil gives that either blasphemous or hubristic line in which he hugs the pilgrim and says, essentially, blessed be the womb that bore you, thus linking the pilgrim to Jesus. It's either a bit of blasphemy on Virgil's part or a bit of hubris on the poet's part, not clear which. So there have been instances in which the pilgrim have wanted to see the damned tortured more before. I would argue that Pope Nicholas III, upside down his hell, the pilgrim rather increases his suffering there. It's not a linear development, and I don't understand the need so many Dantistas have to make this a linear progression of character. We are, after all, in the Middle Ages, not in the 20th and 21st centuries. John Ahrens, the emeritus dentista at Vassar, claims, and I already told you this in a previous episode of this podcast, that Canto 32 starts with the poet's frustration. I can't find the right form to express the despair and the terror of this pit of hell. Aaron's claim is that the poet's frustration with language is worked out in the pilgrim's violence. The poet is so upset that he can't uh, find the right words, the right form, that maybe the Terzarima form itself is not appropriate for this moment. And his frustration then gets channeled into the pilgrim here, and we get a moment of violence from the pilgrim. I rather like this interpretation only because it saves me from the linear development of the previous interpretation. 
interpretation, which I don't think bears out when you think about Filippo Argenti and Pope Nicholas III. I don't find this neo-rational linear development holding true inside comedy. Or here's a third interpretive answer. There's a lot of violence in this passage because of this sinner. We'll talk more about this in the next episode of this podcast. But this sinner in particular calls forth Dante's fury. And I think that that's where I would come down. There have been other moments watching Master Adam and Sinon in their insult match. Well, Virgil reprimands him for that. But there have been other moments in which the pilgrim is curious or the pilgrim is overwhelmed or the pilgrim is sympathetic or cries or laments the sufferings of the damned, I don't see any reason to rob the pilgrim of his humanity. The humanity of the pilgrim is in full display, especially in the face of the last great sinner of hell. But that's yet two episodes ahead of us. All I'm saying is, I don't think that we need a neo-rational linear development of the pilgrim in his theology through hell. Do I think that comedy has linear development? Yes. Do I think it has linear development with loops and subsets? Yes, that's the thing. Yes, like medieval art with tons of loops and subsets. Am I arguing for some linear development? Of course. In the last episode of this podcast, I told you that I thought that the final revelation of hell is that evil is immobile or it is paralyzed and it's stuck in the ice. I'm clearly there arguing for some kind of thematic linear development over the course of Inferno. So what I'm saying is I'm trying to have it both ways. There are linear developments and there also are specific moments that may in and of themselves account for, uh, shall we say, a short story set down inside of Inferno. And I think that that's why the violence is here in this passage. It is specific to this occasion. And I think the specificity of the occasion itself saves us from having to figure out that line, whether what happened was willed or fated or destined, I don't know. We don't have to worry about the theology of that. Because again, this moment is a moment parentheses off. (laughs) Is that a word? Okay, fine. Put in a parentheses off as so many other moments are, as Ulysses' big speech is, as Francesca's speech is, as the moment in which Ferranata rises out of his tomb. There are these kind of parenthetical boundaries on these moments that hold them in place. And I think the poet's art is that certain rules apply inside those moments. You'll note that he kicks this guy hard in the face, and a lot of critics say, well, then it's intentional. You don't just walk along and happen to kick somebody hard. You might happen to kick them, but to actually put some force behind the blow, that means you intended to do it. That's certainly where Hollander comes down. Um, Maybe. I, I don't know. I think that this is, again, a moment that is a kind of story inside a larger story that has its own linear developments. And part of the development here is the frustration to try to come to terms with why this is happening and then to be confronted with this figure who, as we'll talk about next time, is a giant figure out of Italian history. 
The guy says, why are you going down through Antonora kicking people in the cheeks? You know, this is really a lot to take. The pilgrim says, well, I am indeed alive. And if you give a hoot about fame, I can put your name in my notes. We have already seen this with Brunetto Latini. Back in Canto 15 at lines 88 through 90, we saw a bit in which the pilgrim claimed to be making notes about his journey and waiting for another, and I told you back then that that is probably Beatrice, waiting for another to annotate or gloss those notes to give them marginalia. And here again, we seem to have the pilgrim with a notebook, thereby again emphasizing the reality of the journey. Not only did I walk across this known universe, but how do I remember it? I took notes. And so I'm saying to this guy, hey, you want to get written down here in my little notebook like a reporter, right? Well, what's your name again? Can you spell that name for me? Tell me and I'll I'll put you in my poem and you'll be famous for a good long time. And the guy says, I'm greedy for just the opposite. Get out of here and quit bugging me. You have no clue how to flatter someone in this swamp. This guy says, I don't want to be remembered. Don't even think about it. Because that's not anything that is connected to... To me. Now, a lot of people, again, wanting linear development, claim that as we go down in hell, the dam become increasingly uninterested in being remembered. Brunetto Latini, very interested in being remembered. Remember, he still runs away, and before he runs away, he says, don't forget my or my works, don't forget what I've written, keep them alive up there on Earth after you get back up Earth. Remember that bit? Brunetta Latini wants to be remembered, and the claim is that as we approach the bottom more and more, the souls don't want to be, and then when we reach here, they don't want to be at all. Well, that's certainly true with this guy, but we're coming up on the last great center of hell, and Let me tell you, he wants to be remembered. He's going to do his best to find his way into Dante's work and to be remembered for what he endured up on earth and what he is currently doing down in hell. Something particularly disgusting if you don't know what's ahead of us. I don't buy this linear development again. I think that there are situational specifics that drive internal narratives in the poem that itself has some larger linear developments, but none of this exists in a rationalist context. This is medieval. This is not Bach. This this is not Mozart. It's not linear development. This is instead subsets and circles and juxtapositions and returnings and returnings and returnings to thematics to get them to the place where you finally want them, just like so much late medieval painting, just like so much late medieval poetry, just like the troubadours in Provence, this circling around subjects into subsets and sub-directions in order to build up a larger framework that itself has some direction to it. Let's just talk about where we are. We are in, according to this center, Antenora. You'll notice that the boundaries, as I say, blur. It's hard to tell on an ice sheet when we've crossed from one subcircle to the next. But 
it is announced by the sinners. Previously in hell, Virgil's done the announcing. Virgil has kind of helped us know what's ahead of us. He's helped us know who kind of is ahead of us several times. Virgil has done a great deal of the directing. Here in the Ninth Circle, Virgil is quiet, muted, in fact. There may be a reason for that. I'm going to talk about it in a minute. The sinners themselves announce the wrongs. Nobody in the circles of fraud said, welcome to the third pit of fraud. (laughs) It's so ridiculous. Welcome to the fifth pit of fraud. Welcome to the thieves. Nobody said that in the eighth circle of hell. But in the ninth circle of hell, the sinners themselves mark the boundaries for us, not Virgil. And I'll tell you now, these are the political traitors. We had those who acted treacherously or were traitors to their families. Now we have the same traitors or the treacherous to political parties and to country or political groups. Antenor, who this is named for, is a figure that we want to talk about for just a minute. Antenor occurs in a 12th century romance about Troy written by Benoit de Saint-Maur. And in Benoit de Saint-Maur's chronicle, Antenor is seen as one of the prime Uh, what do I want to say, prime figures who bring about the fall of Troy. He steals the Palladium, the wooden statue of Pallas Athena. Although, in the Aeneid, Ulysses and Diomedes are who steal the Palladium. But in this 12th century romance about the fall of Troy, in fact, it's Antenor who steals this figure. In Homer, which Dante wouldn't know, but in Homer's epics, Antenor is the one who counsels Troy to give up Helen. This is, by the way, not mentioned anywhere in Virgil. Nowhere in Virgil does Antenor kind of, you know, prod Troy to give up Helen to try to find some kind of peace. However, there is a commentary on Virgil's Aeneid written by Servius, a grammarian in the late 4th, early 5th centuries. He's living post-schism in the fragmentary western part of the Roman Empire. He writes in the early 5th century a commentary on the Aeneid, and when Virgil brings up the stealing of the Palladium in the Aeneid, Servius, this commentator, in his commentary on the Aeneid, says, oh, and by the way, Homer said this, about who stole the Palladium and names Antenor. You should know that Dante may know this source from Servius the Grammarian in the late fragmented western side of the Roman Empire because in the 11th century, more material was added to Servius's commentary of the Aeneid, and that may be what Dante knows. Somewhere along the line, Dante has picked up the idea that Antenor is a traitor to his country, Troy, to his political affiliations, and thus named this pit after them, which brings us to a supreme moment of irony and perhaps an answer for Virgil's silence. 
Dante, <laughs> how do I say this, is being a traitor to his party, his literary party, his literary country, Virgil, the Aeneid. This bit about Antinor is not found in the Aeneid, in, in the stories of the fall of Troy, in any source that Dante regularly cites. He's instead citing submaterial from other places, maybe from a 12th century romance by a Frenchman, well, not really Frenchman, but by somebody who speaks French, or maybe even by this late Western Roman Empire grammarian. These are not traditional sources for Dante. And I think that naming this pit about political traitors, those who are traitorous toward their country, there's just a little smile on Dante's face because, you know, he's not giving it to Virgil and he's not giving it to Ovid and he's not giving it to Stasius. Maybe that's why Virgil is so quiet. <laughs> because Virgil is unnecessary for this information. I mean, Virgil is pointed out in the passage that Pilgrim says, hey, I said to my master, can I stop a bit? I know we're hurrying, but can I stop and find out who this is, who I've kicked? And Virgil doesn't say a word. He's also silent, Virgil is, about Antinor, the traitor. Maybe there's a little bit of Dantean irony going on here underneath the surface. I, I think that there is a kind of smile, a wink to say, mm, you know, hey, I could be a literary trader a bit too. I could find source material outside of my grandmasters and use it as here to name the second subring of hell, Antonora. Much to say about this passage. Again, I'm not going to reread it right now. I'm going to save that for the next episode of this podcast. We'll come to the end of the 32nd Canto in the next podcast. We'll find out much more who this figure is. We'll talk about his historical place, why Dante is so angry at him. That Really, this is kind of a two-parter, and I divided this thing in half because the passage itself is just so rich and so full. We might as well just slow down and really pay attention to translation problems, to perhaps Dantean irony. All those things we love in this podcast, Walking with Dante. So subscribe, read this podcast. Give it a rating, please, on Apple Podcasts or audiobooks. Just drop right down there to the bottom. You can rate it, and you can even see a link to write a review. You click it, you write the review. Even nice podcasts would be great because... I am not supported. I am willfully not supported because I want to be able to say whatever I want to say at whatever speed I want to say it at without anyone else giving me notes about why I'm doing it and how I should be doing it better. Wow, isn't that a little bit hubristic? Well, maybe I fit the pilgrim and Dante the Poet a little bit. So subscribe, rate, do all that stuff that you do. Come back. Thanks for being on the journey with me. I'm walking across an ice sheet with our pilgrim and his guide. And we've got to find out who this is who's going to have every hair torn out of his head. I'm Mark Scarborough. I'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.